Hey, listeners. Be the Change is hosting a virtual job fair on April 22nd for the beverage alcohol industry. Registration is now open for all employers at be the change jobfair.com. Sign up to connect with up to 1,000 job seekers. This is an equal opportunity job fair open to all. Please see our show notes for the link to be the change jobfair.com. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We are continuing our series on talking with wine marketing bodies. And today we have Sam Filler, the executive director of New York Wine and Grape Foundation. Sam, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Peter and Robert. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. It's great to learn about New York wine. Obviously, being in California, we don't get to taste everything. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of context of New York wine in the American market and kind of walk through the different EVAs that we have. Sure. New York is just about 470 wineries in the state. I think at least 100 of those are really top tier vinifera producing wineries. Remains largely a family owned type of industry. So a lot of family owned wineries, you know, even Constellation Brands, which was started by the Sands family that started off as a family owned winery many, many, many years ago. So we're actually number three in wine production in the United States, just behind California and Washington. You know, our annual economic impact is 6.65 billion. We support 72,000 jobs. New York is a really big state and we have a lot of diverse microclimates. So I think we're unique in the fact that we have a maritime AVA in Long Island. We have a river AVA in the Hudson Valley. And then, of course, the Finger Lakes and the Great Lakes. So our wine regions are influenced by Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. And then we have wineries as far north on the Canadian border along Lake Champlain. So we're everywhere and we have about 40,000 acres planted in the state. We have 11 AVAs. However, the major regions are considered the Finger Lakes, Niagara, Long Island, Hudson Valley, and Lake Erie. In terms of some breakdown, in terms of like Long Island and obviously Finger Lakes are, are pretty well known. In terms of the Niagara and Lake Erie regions, are those seeing the same kind of like, you know, I see a lot of stuff on like the Canadian side of the border in terms of what's going on in Ontario. I'm curious if there's the same kind of vibrancy in those regions on our side of the border. I think from a winemaking perspective, there's still kind of quite nascent because Lake Erie, at least, is still a major Concord grape growing region for Welch's and other juice processors. Uh, And same thing with Niagara. But there's a really important nursery based in Lake Erie called AA Vineyards. And they're kind of the source place for a lot of vinifera, hybrid, and other types of grapes that go to other regions. So they're not quite at the notoriety of their Canadian cousins, but I think they share similar climate and do have the potential to be successful over the long term. The folks in Niagara feel like they could be a leading Pinot Noir region. Got it. So yeah, let's keep going down that path because, you know, when I hear of New York wine, I just instantly jump to Finger Lakes Riesling because that's what's most familiar to me. How should people think about the hallmark grapes or varieties for the different AVAs in New York State? Yeah, I think for sure Riesling is up there. It's grown in most regions of the state. It's certainly the signature grape of the Finger Lakes. And it goes from bone dry to sweet, very similar to what you can find in Germany and Alsace. I think another grape that seems to be connecting the state is Cabernet Franc. 
which is also grown in most parts of the state and makes a really, really nice wine. And I think also Chardonnay is a great grape that is grown in the Finger Lakes. It's grown in Lake Erie. It's grown on Long Island. Makes more of a Chablis-style wine than a kind of a California oak Chardonnay. Pinot Noir actually does well in New York as well. And it's quite a lot of it is used in uh, sparkling wine production. So are there specific styles that are dominant in certain regions? You know, Robert mentioned Finger Lakes Riesling. When I think Niagara, I guess I think ice wine. And I've done some work in Long Island. I guess maybe rosé might be a thing, but I have no idea what would be a signature of Hudson Valley or Lake Erie or if those are even correct or there are others. I think Hudson Valley, what they're really focused in on is Cabernet Franc. So they formed what's called the Hudson Valley Cabernet Franc Coalition. I think it's still sort of like mainly focused in the immediate New York market in terms of their marketing, but that's what they want to make their signature grape. There's like 500 acres of vines planted in the Hudson Valley. So, you know, they're sort of limited by that scope. Long Island, I think that there's great debate about what the signature grape is. There's some folks that want it to be Merlot. There's others that kind of a more open interpretation. But Merlot is, I think, generally the base grape of the rosé that's produced out there. I mean, I think they're seeing success with, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is a great white from Long Island. Also, Cabernet Franc is doing well there. Lake Erie, they're actually seeing some success with Riesling as well. And again, I'll go back to like, there's that key nursery there, AA Vineyards, that, you know, is actually a source for a lot of the plant material. They also, I think, in terms of a hybrid that's similar to a Gewürztraminer, Tremonette is a great example from Lake Erie as well. Interesting. I see a future wine battle for Robert uh, between New York and, and Virginia Cabernet Franc. Because I feel like Virginia is kind of Cabernet Franc, Viognier, right? If New York is trying to do Cabernet Franc, that would be an interesting one. Well, that's actually interesting because, you know, Virginia does have, and Maryland for that matter, have those maritime climates. So they are choosing kind of thicker skin, hardier grapes. You know, a lot of Albarino, Petit Monsong, things with thicker skins that can stand up to some of the temperature. I know a lot of people are playing around with hybrids as well in those areas. There's been a lot of research there for those. And I I was just curious on uh, Long Island because it gets quite wet there if they're dabbling with, I mean, I think Merlot is potentially susceptible to many of these weather condition issues. Well, I think what they find there is, you know, it's not a mountainous region. It's actually relatively flat out there. And so they have the Long Island Sound to the north and the Atlantic to the south. And I think because they get a pretty consistent breeze from those bodies of water that even though New York is generally kind of a wet state, the vines do get good airflow that keeps them from developing, you know, the downy mildews and the other disease pressures from getting too wet. And the soils are really well draining as well. It's a, a sandy loam. So the feet of the vines don't get too wet either. I mean, I think the bigger issue is when a hurricane comes and that actually creates more damage to the vines than anything. In terms of the regions, in terms of importance for representing New York wine, I'm assuming Finger Lakes is a top, but maybe is there like a stack ranking of how how much awareness there is for each of the different regions across New York State? Or like, how would they kind of rank in an order? I'll say it's probably hard to rank them, but I, I think that the Finger Lakes have done a really good job of marketing themselves, marketing themselves as a, you know, a Riesling region. Uh, and it's not only that, they have wine trails. So the very first wine trail established in the United States was on Cuga Lake in 1983. So wine tourism has been a big part of their DNA for a long time. And that's just, the wine region is, 
the oldest Pleasant Valley Wine Company was the first bond and winery, I think, in 1870. So it has a history of, you know, even before our modern times, it was noted for its sparkling wine production in the late 1800s. The oldest winery in the United States is actually Brotherhood Winery located in the Hudson Valley. I would say that Long Island would probably want to say that they should be considered the top and they probably are deserving of that. They're the closest to the New York City market or they're kind of equidistant with the Hudson Valley, but there's a lot of fine wine producers out there. They've done a good job getting into the New York City market. They've also done a great job as marketing themselves as a region. So, you know, I would say kind of Finger Lakes probably has a little bit more notoriety because of its history, but internationally, Long Island and, and Finger Lakes, I think, are equally recognized. There's a couple good producers out in Niagara that are also getting international distribution. So the Hudson Valley is probably up there too, just because of its history, but there's a lot of good noted producers there as well. So there's a lot of things that make New York wine so diverse. What are the things that, outside of state borders, that bring it all together? I'll just go back to this history of wine tourism. The industry was really oriented around tasting room experiences. And when you go into a tasting room, it's very likely that you're going to meet with the owner yourself or if not the winemaker. So it's a very highly personalized experience. And, you know, I think one benefit of COVID has been, while not ideal, they've had to change their models in their tasting rooms to elevate the level of their hospitality. So I think that has been a benefit because it has improved our wine tourism experience even further. So I think the connective tissue is really we're a cool climate grape growing region that is still mainly driven by family businesses. And it sounds like it might be very much driven by hospitality and the distance to Manhattan or New York City. Correct. Yep. You mentioned the elevation. It reminds me of McCary's like glamping tents <laughs> with all the things inside. I haven't been able to see those yet, but they uh, they have a very beautiful property that overlooks Long Island Sound. Yeah, to go back to the diversity, I think we're also united by this fact that we're defined by the bodies of water that surround the grape growing regions. And, you know, in the Finger Lakes, they have these very dramatic hillsides that feed into the lakes. I would say probably Cuca Lake is my favorite on that. There's just these dramatic angles. You almost feel like you're somewhere in the Alps in Europe. It's so dramatic. And then I think Lake Erie is also similar to Long Island where it's a little bit flatter. They're on this, the Niagara Escarpment is what it's called. And and that goes into Lake Erie as well. So it provides this buffering influence for, for the vineyards as well. So you represent New York Wine and Great Foundation. I'm curious if the mission and purpose of the organization at large, I was wondering if you'd go over that for us. Sure. So we were created by a state law in 1985 for the specific purpose to lead the promotional and research efforts on behalf of the industry. So I sort of interpret this as more of an economic development mission because the organization was formed in the middle of a crisis in the wine grape industry in the the mid-80s. There was a couple large wine houses that were beginning to decline in business, and they were purchasing less and less grapes from a lot of the Finger Lakes growers. And so we were formed to serve as that marketing entity to help the smaller farm wineries promote their products, but also at the same time invest in resources, improving viticulture practices and the winemaking practices. So we have long been associated with Cornell University and their wine grape program to really help advance the industry. And I think it's paid off after the past 30 years. 
Yeah, I'm assuming the hospitality side as well has really helped with the Cornell because they have a leading program there. That's right. Yep. So Grape is in the name, Grape Foundation. I'm curious on why Grape is a name specifically and how important that is to the overall like wine production side. Yeah. So the mission is quite broad. So it's not just wine grapes, it's, you know, juice grapes. And actually two thirds of what's planted in the state are Concord grapes. And we're fortunate that Welch's has been a partner for a very long time. They're really an important partner in the research that we do on the viticulture side. So they have the resources to cover their own marketing, but they've been, you know, in terms of innovation in the vineyards, like they're really a key partner. In terms of table grapes, there's probably less than 500 acres planted in the state. But if you ever have the occasion to go to Union Square Farmer's Market on a Friday or Saturday, there's local grape producers that sell the most delicious grapes better than you can find at Whole Foods or whatever the market is. I think they're probably better tasting than California table grapes, but... Wow. (laughs) So how do you define success for the organization? What we've been really focused in over the past year and a half is building the capacity of the industry. Again, I think going back to that, they're mainly family-run businesses, is assisting them in making the transition to some of the newer marketing efforts that are out there, especially DTC online, how to optimize their websites, how to better connect to customers and, and maintain those relationships. So that's probably a difficult thing to quantify because their own business success is part of their own responsibility. But the more we're able to get our members tapped into thinking about innovative business practices and getting them connected to experts, we think that's successful. I guess specifically on that, Cornell has a great wine analytics lab. And so part of the funding we receive from the state of New York, we help underwrite the lab test there. And why that is important is it helps our wineries improve the quality of their product, make sure that there's no flaws in their wines and you know they just get the basic baseline information they need to label their wine properly so you know our success is seeing them do well and them improving the quality of their products so who are your members is it just wineries is it grape growers merchants welches i guess as a partner or? it's mainly the farm wineries in new york state so that's actually a specific legal term it's it's a winery that commits to using 100% new york state grapes in its production It's commercial wineries. It is grape growers of all kinds. And then we do have business partners that help support us. So the folks that we're trying to serve are the wineries and the grape growers. And you said you're established by state law. Is it 100% funded by the state or do the members have to pay some amount or participate in auctions or do other things? So yes, we do have membership dues, but I will say, but for the state money, it would be hard to raise money other ways. The state funds really support the infrastructure of the organization, the staffing, you know, the research that we do. And so the state fund sort of acts as a magnet to other sources of funding. So the membership dues, getting matching funds for research that we fund, grants that we submit. So for the past 30 years, we've been getting a grant from the United States Department of Agriculture to run an export program. It's called the Market Access Program is is the funding source from the USDA. And that's almost a half a million dollars a year we receive from USDA. But we wouldn't be able to get that if we weren't able to provide the matching funds from the state. So the state funding is sort of like the key to everything we're able to do. We're different from maybe like a Washington or Oregon, where they have what are called market orders. So, or they have a compulsory assessment that the growers and wineries have to pay into. We don't have that. It's all voluntary dues from the growers and wineries who are our members. 
So there's your larger organization, but inside each of these subgroups, they have their own specific organizations as well. And how do you guys work together? So you're speaking to like Wine Trails or the other marketing groups? Yeah. So for a long time, our relationship with the marketing trails is we would take the state funds and help underwrite their marketing costs. So printing brochures or doing advertisements. You know, I think the only other kind of main wine marketing group is called the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance. So what we do is try to strategically collaborate with them on uh, big events that happen in the state. So like two years ago, there was FL Excursion, which was basically a um, city of Riesling type event that was celebrating Riesling and, and brought in a lot of outside folks. So we co-sponsored some stuff with Finger Lakes Wine Alliance. If you read our statute that created us, it says that the state compels us to coordinate and communicate with these other groups. But I think it's in our interest because you know we really want to speak with one voice about what New York wine is all about or New York grape products. And the more we're coordinated with them, it's better for everyone. And I think I shared with you guys the wine marketing toolkit that we had put together. I think what we're good at doing is going out and seeking grant funding and investing in impactful research that helps them kind of do their job on better on the ground. So in terms of most of your efforts, the target audience for those, are those trade education, journals and PR, or is it direct-to-consumer? How are you guys doing that? Or are you doing multiple fronts? We're doing multiple things, and that's something that we're continuing to fine-tune. So you know, I'd say an organization like the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance, they have really uh, dialed in on coordinating wine submissions for their members, you know, really presenting the Finger Lakes as a category to the major wine publications. They do very high-touch trade events, bringing trade up to the Finger Lakes or going doing roadshows. We were doing very similar things up until COVID. We had a program called New York Drinks New York, which was specifically focused on trade and media in the New York City market. So we would bring them up to the Finger Lakes. We'd bring them to Long Island. We'd bring them to the Hudson Valley. And that would culminate every month with large-scale portfolio tasting that we called the Grand Tasting. And we last held that in the Rainbow Room in 2019. So we've pivoted to doing virtual tastings, which I'm sure you've done a lot of those. And we intend to continue doing those because... It helps our reach to get in touch with trade in other markets like Chicago, Texas, California. So we don't necessarily have to pay for them to travel here, but we can ship them wine so they can participate in the tasting. I do think once the vaccinations get out there and it's safe for all of us to get together again, we'll revisit doing your traditional trade tours. I guess I will say with our export program, that funding allows us to do basically what are called uh, reverse trade missions. So we can bring trade and media from the UK, Canada, and Asia to come into New York and also do those type of tours. So we're hoping, like I mentioned, this FL Excursion Conference, it's scheduled to happen again in July in person. And if that happens, then we'll be bringing folks from international markets into the Finger Lakes. I guess I would say, you know, we want to get better at our press relations. We've had PR firms work with us and, you know, it's finding the right partner is really important and finding a partner that has really good knowledge about the wine industry. You know, I was on the phone earlier today with one of my key members and he was just like, our industry is a relationship business and your network makes a big difference. Cold calling and sending cold emails is not necessarily the most successful strategy. It takes time to build relationships and trust. And, you know, so that's an area we're looking to build. And how much would be considered direct to consumer, though, in terms of most of your in terms of your efforts? I think that's a relatively new thing we've been focusing on because of COVID again. And we, you know, we're working with Sandra Hess from DTC Wine Workshops and the Wise Academy. So, you know, we're, 
our role in that is really helping to connect our wineries to those experts so they can adopt the best practices that those folks are really good at, at conveying. And beyond that, I don't know what we'll do in sort of the DTC space. Well, I guess the last thing I'll share is we did partner with Vino Shipper to at least on the consumer side, when we do these virtual tastings and they're for a consumer audience, the consumer can go to Vino Shipper and purchase the wines that will be featured in the virtual tasting. It's not the optimal solution because each individual winery has to ship the wines. It doesn't come together as one package, but it's sort of the best we can do right now, given the, the legal structure of things to supplement our virtual tastings with, by providing that access. In, in terms of focus, in terms of geographic focus for New York wine and, and grape foundation, I have to assume it's mostly initially focused on New York City and then branching out to East Coast, the rest of the U.S., then globally. I was just curious on, in terms of your efforts, where does that break down? Like, is that the right order of operations, like getting it locally first with New York being such a big market and then expanding from there? Definitely New York City. It- has been our number one focus. We did try to expand you know, into the Hudson Valley and Long Island for our, our trade visits. We've started to recruit into Chicago more, Florida. We were trying to go to markets where our wineries have good presence. Pennsylvania is a little more difficult because it's a liquor control state. So the you know they have the Pennsylvania State Liquor Control Board and they run and operate pretty much all the liquor stores. So someone may want our product, but it has to go through that control board. You know, again, I'll just say like, the virtual tastings, I think, opens up to a broader audience that makes it more economically effective. We were doing advertising on Levy Dalton's podcast to help recruit trade that way, but we were mainly kind of calling folks from New York off that list we were generating. And now we're doing advertising on 750 because that's a network of 300,000 trade. And, and so, again, I think virtual tastings allow us to hit a broader audience. And I think we're trying to see, not that we're trying to cast a broad net, but it's like, Let's see who gets interested and gets passionate about it because we are more of a niche type of industry. I mean, we're not the size of California, but we're an interesting story and we're making great wines. I got to say, as a, selfishly, I would love to see more New York State wines in California because the ones that I have had have been actually really well made. And I think it's a shame that we don't see more of it out here. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> And part of it is having such a big local market, right? And presumably a lot of New York wines are sold via the tasting room and hospitality visitation. Is that true? How much wine is actually sold that way? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something like 70% is sold out of the tasting room in New York, which is, I think, Sandra Hess came and did a webinar for us like last early May. And that was one of her very first slides is just comparing New York to the other major wine regions in the US. And so we're like 20, 25% over the next closest region, which I might say is probably Oregon, because I think they have a pretty robust wine tourism thing. So that's great. And I think actually, fortunately, the wineries had a very good year wine tourism wise, like there was a winery that's been in business for 40 years and they had their best year ever in terms of visitation. They saw less people, but price gain per customer was a lot more because people were actually buying cases of wine and leaving instead of just kind of saddling up to the tasting bar and paying five bucks for a tasting. They were making bigger purchases. So that was good. So I think that's why we're not so advanced in DTC as you see on the West Coast, because you just inherently had this really good, robust tourism market. But I think COVID did wake us up to the fact that like, hey, we need to diversify into these other areas. They can be reliable sources of revenue for the wineries. And there's kind of that core 100 wineries in the state that 
had a very robust wholesale business, especially on-premise in New York City. And that took a hit with COVID. And so I think that, again, that forced them to say, okay, what can we do in terms of DTC and direct-to-consumers? And I, our mutual friend, Peter uh, Gabrielli McCary, I mean, I think they're an example of a winery that really dialed in their wine club program and, and really you know, were able to be successful just selling through that channel during the hardest part of the COVID crisis last spring. For sure. And doing different innovations and things of that nature. Along those lines, are most of the visitors to New York Wines local or New York Drinks New York, right? Your campaign? Or is it obviously there people talk about the tri-state area, which is New Jersey and Connecticut. But is it broader than that? I mean, there's some big markets. You talked about Pennsylvania. Ohio's not that far. Massachusetts. So I think pre-COVID, the amount of tourism that could be generated out out of New York City wasn't as robust as it could have been. And I think that's more true in terms of the Finger Lakes, more of the Western part of the state, because it, it takes five, five and a half hours to get to the Finger Lakes from New York City. So that's a, it's a big commitment. Long Island is a little bit different because it's two and a half, three hours from the city. So that's sort of a reasonable day trip. Same with the Hudson Valley. It's literally an hour from the city. So, you know, if you're looking at it in terms of the Finger Lakes, their main market was really Pennsylvania, you know, folks from Scranton, folks from Pittsburgh, Philadelphia is probably not that far either. But I'll go back to that wine marketing tourism toolkit and we see consumer research we did, markets that were within a five-hour drivable distance of the borders of New York State, they rank New York as their number one destination to go to. So it's really all the surrounding states plus Ohio, you know, that we're feeding into our wine tourism what happened in COVID, since people couldn't travel as far, and I think actually New York did a really great job as a state being a safer place to come because we had the virus in check over the summer. We saw a lot more people from Queens and Brooklyn that were going to the Hudson Valley. They were venturing out to Long Island, and even the Finger Lakes was getting really great visitation. So hopefully this sort of realization that local is good and an interest in local is going to carry forward with the folks from New York City that got introduced to our wine regions. But this is, I think, where we need to support our wineries to help them develop strategies. Well, okay, you've now acquired these new customers. How do you keep them engaged? What's going to bring them back once they, again, will have the option to travel to Napa Valley or go travel to Piedmont? So how do we create that loyalty of our own in-state residents? Yeah, part of that could be the beauty of the lakes in addition to the wine, right? And I guess that brings my next question, which is what are the key reasons people choose to visit one of the New York wine regions? Is it just wine or are there other things that draw people in? Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. that there's so much natural beauty to the state and you know we have a really rich history dating back to the Revolutionary War. So there's a lot of interesting things related to that and you know, even civil rights, like the Seneca Lake, it was where the women's rights movement started. But, you know, so I'll say like for the Finger Lakes, Watkins Glen State Park, which is where there's this beautiful waterfall, has been recognized by USA Today as one of the top tourism destinations year after year after year. So there's a lot of natural beauty to see. The food is incredible in the state. I mean, you know, Long Island oysters are incredible. The only duck farm that's left in Sort of this lower part of the state is located out there. You know, we have a really big dairy industry and local beef industry. So there's some fantastic places to eat in the Finger Lakes as well, like FLX Table. And yeah, there's just a diversity of offerings. I mean, we didn't even talk about the Adirondacks, which is one of the largest state parks in the United States. And 
there's wineries in and out in, of that region as well, too. So there's a lot to see in New York beyond wine, but wine is a really nice complement to the experience. That's good to hear. I, I remember visiting that Adirondacks, and it is quite beautiful. So when you're looking at establishing the messaging for New York wine at large or even specific sub-regions inside New York, do you think it's important for those regions to focus in on specific wine style or specific grape varieties, or do you feel like it's generally good for them to diversify and have and just kind of experiment and figure out what's going on? And, and like, how does that help or hurt messaging? So I don't know if we ever comprehensively have developed really a statewide messaging. Our former tagline and brand was Uncork New York, which is a really great alliteration. Two years ago, we switched over to Boldly New York because we were trying to figure out, you know, what's really the connective tissue between all these regions and, you know, what is also reflective of the attitude in New York City. Because sometimes New York City can maybe seem alien to the rest of the state, but I think what Boldly New York stands for is really this courageous spirit, risk-taking spirit that we have all across the state. So to you know, plant vines in New York State is an audacious act. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, as you said, like the weather on Long Island can be challenging. The weather all over the state is challenging. We have winters with snow. It gets cold. You got to be a little crazy to do this, but crazy in a good way. So we think sort of that audacious spirit is really what connects everyone. And the other thing we did is we went through a strategic planning process a couple of years ago, and we were trying to develop what our vision statement was going to be. And we came down to, to be the world's premier cool and cold climate grape growing region. You know, some people feel it's a little presumptuous to say that, but we say to be. We don't believe we're there yet, but that's what we're aspiring to. And why do we choose cool and cold climate? Again, it's Long Island is a little bit of a warmer area of the state, but it's still a cool climate grape growing region. We're still generally growing all the same varietals. It's also recognition that Concord is a cool climate grape. And while in the kind of Adirondacks region of the state, they may not be able to grow vinifera, they're growing varieties like Marquette and Frontenac, which are the cold hardy varieties that were developed by the University of Minnesota. So that is the start of the commonality. You know, we're in the middle of a global messaging project to help us kind of more narrowly define what talking points are going to be and how, again, I think we're going to talk about New York wines in a unified voice. I think we want to be respectful of the regional differences and the differences in their stories. So we don't want to like, just like, this is the only thing you're going to say about New York wines. Like, I think we want to have consistency in kind of the overall messaging, but recognizing the uniqueness of the regions. But I think what we're learning through the research is really the individual stories of the wineries and, and the families is what's really compelling. You know, everyone wants to hang their hat on a signature grape. And I think obviously that's important, but it also can become uh, a limitation down in the future where maybe there's other varieties that are actually really interesting and good, but no one wants to consider them because you've been positioning yourself as a Maldec region. And now you're making a great Cabernet Franc, but people just want to buy your Maldec. So Chances Robinson's going to headline our annual conference this Friday. And so in our prep call with her, she even, we asked her that question. They're like, should New York be pushing a signature grape? And she's like, no, you know, I think it actually in the long term becomes a liability because that's what you become associated with, even though you may be doing some other things really well. So I think the regional groups probably will push back on me on that comment because I think they still feel strongly about pushing a single varietal. But I think really surfacing the unique stories of their members is going to be more impactful than positioning certain grapes. Yeah, I, I think having that signature grape 
makes it easier for the trade to learn, understand, sell, resell the wines right to their consumers and build a brand for that region. But when you're selling direct to consumer and through the tasting room, having the diversity is really important because people don't necessarily want to buy one case or many cases of the exact same wine. They want to have a selection to choose from. So business model matters. And in a way, you need a combination of both because the trade is what's going to build the reputation more broadly globally, right? If you target being global and it's those consumers buying direct consumer who really resonate with the stories of the the founders and the winery and that sort of thing. Well, and I think even if we look at the national research that's being done by like Silicon Valley Bank, it's the next generation coming in wants discovery. They're interested in weird and different grapes or they're not going to buy a case of all Cabernet Sauvignon. That's my own wine shopping when I go to the Whole Foods down the street here. It's like, I got six different wines I want to try and see how they do. I mean, I do have favorites, but I think the next wine consumer, it's that discovery and finding something new that it's what's valued more. And how are you viewing investment or has there been significant investment from either other parts of the country or internationally in the New York State wine regions? I think the most notable investment has been by Paul Hobbs. He is going to be launching his Hillock and Hobbs brand this year. And that has to do with the work that the wineries have done in the region to raise the Finger Lakes profile as a Riesling growing region. I think he's going to be mainly a Riesling type of brand. But Paul Hobbs is actually originally from Niagara County and his family had a farm there. So maybe it shouldn't be surprising that he's coming to the Finger Lakes. But The trend that I see, it's actually other family wineries buying out other family wineries and they're maintaining those brands. So, you know, uh, Pominock on Long Island bought Palmer Vineyards and they're maintaining the Palmer brand because Palmer actually established itself for a lot of great wines, but they were one of the few wineries doing Albarino here in New York. You know, and Herman J. Weimer bought a winery called Standing Stone and Standing Stone was known for among many things, but they had Saparavi. So Weimer has reinvested in that brand and is, is continuing it. So I think that's encouraging when the, the industry is investing in itself and it's still staying mainly family run and operated. I mean, the biggest thing that's happened in the past year is Gallo bought out Constellation. And so Constellation, their big facility is in Canandaigua. And, and so now that's going to be a Gallo facility. And we're excited about Gallo. They're really great partners to the industry. They contribute a lot to research. They're really interested in viticulture practices. So that's going to be good. Anyway, you know, what I like about your question is I was actually asked that by the head of the Liquor Control Board of Ontario and Canada, George Soleus, because I think part of how they evaluate whether they invest in wine regions is, well, does private equity or private funding, are they invested in developing these regions? And I can't say that that's evident yet in New York, but I think that there's something good about it still sort of like the industry is investing in itself rather than there being this aggressive kind of probably what you see happening in California or happening pre-COVID. Or Oregon has had a lot of investment coming in from all over the place and and all that. And I can't say it's not valuable, but it's just too aggressive might not be good for New York. I don't know. <laughs> you need the right kind of foreign crazy, right? <laughs> to match the New York crazy. Of the all the various techniques you've used to promote New York wines, whether it's webinars or the trade events, bringing the journalists over, 
What have you found the most effective so far? I think when people can connect in person, that's really the most valuable. I'm sure you guys have experienced these wine trade trips and they can be quite intense because you're literally going to seven tasting rooms in one day and you're like, oh, great, another Riesling. <laughs> and you know this Riesling's different because the peach comes out more. And you're like, great, uh, I can't taste my taste buds because the acid has ruined them. So what we started experimenting with is actually mixing up the visits a little bit more instead of it being this kind of assault on your palate and assault on your just traveling all over the places incorporating some more of the local elements. So we had folks visit the Watkins Glen State Park, or we would sort of do more of a walk around tasting at one of the wineries and have a nice meal, just kind of slow down the pace so that there was more time for everyone to connect with each other. It's a little bit calmer. We're not showing them 20 wines in one sitting. It's just a little more curated. So I think that that has been more effective. You know, it gives the wineries a better chance to tell their stories and make those connections with the trade. Have your marketing techniques or uh, different pushes or promotions you have vary by who you're targeting, whether that's like local within New York City or other people in the state or even broader U.S. or international? I think we're starting to step into that territory of being more targeted and sophisticated. So we were more focused on New York City trade and we were building up our list through that. And we had been doing our New York Drinks New York trade tours for like almost nine years. But I, you know, I think much like the wineries need to elevate their sophistication for DTC, us as a marketing association, that's one area where we need to improve and we need to grow. Because I, I think I shared earlier, we're sort of like in a shotgun method right now, but we definitely need to narrow that in. I would say where we're a little bit more targeted is, again, through our export program, because we have marketing representatives in the UK, Canada, and Asia, and they're able to like more tightly curate who we're inviting and attending our virtual tastings and will eventually be coming to visit in person again. We're definitely much more of a specialized product abroad because sometimes we're not as price competitive, especially in Europe. We're competing against France and Italy and Spain who can bring quality wines into the market. So you know, we're really trying to identify those retailers that want to specialize in niche products that are unique, can tell a good story. So that's, you know, we're not going to go after the grocery store chains to like get New York wines in there. Like, you know, we're looking for retailers that have respect and notoriety. So having a New York wine placement in their shop, good for the overall brand of New York wines, because we're being recognized by a you know, retailer that's highly curated. Sam, with every guest on our show, we always ask them uh, some parting advice to give to our listeners. And I'm curious if you have a lasting trend and a fizzling fad for New York wines. So lasting trend is something that will you see is happening and will keep going in the future. And fizzling fad is something that was either happening or thought about and then is kind of fizzling away. I think the lasting trend is this higher level of hospitality that you'll see in the tasting rooms. I think the wineries have recognized that the value of doing reservations in advance, the value of having a less crowded tasting room, and the customer loyalty that you can develop through a really highly curated tasting. The fading trend, I think it's having big buses and big groups coming through and dropping off a ton of people to do a cattle call up to the tasting bar like that, I think is fading now that we have this new model. And I think hopefully that will make for a better pleasant visiting experience for new people that come to the region. 
And I guess my last question for you is, what are you most excited about in the coming years uh, for New York State Wine? We're working on establishing a sustainability certification program. There's a lot of wineries that are already doing sustainable viticultural practices, but this is our way to be able to recognize that and also, I think, speak to the provenance of our wines. I think inherently the fact that we're local and we are working with grapes that we know do well in New York State means that you know, we are observing sustainable viticulture practices. So, you know, hopefully that will be a good, you know, when you think of a New York state wine, you know, that it's grown ethically, that the employees at that winery are treated well, that the wine gives back to their local community. So I think, again, like it's worth the value of buying a New York state wine because it represents industry that's ethical and does well. That, that sounds great. I'm super excited to hear more about that as that gets rolled out. Well, pay attention later this year. We'll have a big announcement. Well, thank you so much. We really enjoy your time and learning more about New York State Wine and Grape Foundation. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.